0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. So our text today is taken from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles.
1: Second chapter of Acts captures a groundbreaking moment for the church. Earlier in Acts chapter two, the disciples of Jesus are gathered together, praying, waiting for the promise. And just as Jesus had promised, the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people. And as a result, the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the in-breaking kingdom of God is proclaimed in many languages. And as a result, men and women hear these words with deep conviction. They respond with repentance and faith. They're baptized. And in just one day, 3,000 people are saved and added to the church. So what is the result of such an explosion of supernatural power falling upon humanity on the day of Pentecost? Well, what we see here is that as the dust settled for for you know such a a big dramatic event like this what was unveiled in that moment was a devoted church verse 42 and they devoted themselves don't overlook this the spirit of God empowers us to live devoted lives what does a spirit empowered life look like it looks devoted The word here for devoted, actually, in and around this time, meant in lock and step. It was a military term, and it it meant to be moving troops, moving in the same direction. It means steadfast adherence. It means unwavering commitment to a shared goal. And in this passage, we see this devotion being lived out in three distinct directions. So this January, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break from our study in Hebrews. We will be back in Hebrews, I promise you that, Lord willing at least. But we're going to spend three weeks looking at this passage, looking at a vision series titled Direction, which focuses on three vital relationships that together results in flourishing for individual lives and a community. This is absolutely essential stuff for the life of a disciple up being that first direction, our relationship with the Lord and worship, in, being our relationship with other believers within fellowship, and then out on mission for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ in our city and beyond. So we're going to look at this passage three different times over the course of the next three weeks, but today we're going to look at that first direction upward, and I've titled this morning's message, A Godward Life. A Godward Life, and I'm calling you to settle for nothing less than a Godward life. So let me cast a little bit of vision for this and then I'll come back in a few minutes and offer some timeless descriptions of what a Godward life looks like. But look again with me in verse 39. For the promise is for you. So let's personalize this for a second. The promise is for you and for your children and just in case there were any doubts, for all Who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What a beautiful vision. Called to God by God. So ultimately, this is a call to the Lord. And this call towards the Lord is directional. It's a move toward him in faith that has been initiated by God according to his grace. So the two words that have changed the world forever, and I'm not being dramatic here, I mean, two words that have changed the course of human history forever are the words that Jesus spoke to his first disciples when he called them to himself and said, follow me. And this has become a timeless description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. It quite simply means to follow Jesus. Jesus. And this is important because it reminds us that a life of faith is not simply about what we think or what we feel towards Jesus. Although, don't get me wrong, those are important. Faith is not a static position that we hold. It's not just a static doctrinal position. It's not just thinking right thoughts or knowing the right answers. Faith, according to the Bible, is a reorienting of our lives and our future around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Quite simply, faith is a move in a new direction. Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham went. In short, it is a Godward life. It's a life drawn towards him. It's a life motivated by God's goodness. It's a life awakened and then empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a life that is compelled by this free offer of forgiveness for all of our sins. It's a life where God becomes, as the old creeds say or the old catechisms say, where God becomes our chief end, our ultimate goal, our highest priority. Greg McCowan in his book Essentialism says this. He says, the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. And it stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Isn't that a tale of our day? somehow we would now be able to have multiple first things. This gave the impression of many things being the priority, but actually meant nothing was. So let me be brass tacks here. Having multiple priorities means you actually have no priority at all. And for many of us, this is the way that we relate to God, unfortunately. We treat him as one of our multiple priorities. And we may even say things like this, well, God is an important part of my life. Or faith is one of my personal values. Or I make sure I make time for God. Do You see the problem in all these statements though? The problem is that Jesus is constantly pushing us away from this sort of approach and toward absolute devotion. He has no desire to be simply important in your life. Jesus' ultimate desire for you is that he would be your everything. Why? Why? Is he just some sort of egomaniac that needs our attention? No. It's because he knows that we can't be satisfied And ultimately, we can't be saved or transformed by a God who is simply important to us. Think about the illustration of marriage. Like in a marriage, true intimacy, true joy, true freedom, true love, true relational growth only happens in that covenant where we say, I promise to forsake all others and give myself completely to one. Paul would put it this way in Philippians. But one thing I do. Like this is my thing. One thing. Forgetting what lies behind. And straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is beautiful because this doesn't necessarily mean that we are approaching God to get things from God. And this is ultimately not even about the things that we do for God. The prize is that we get God himself. What is compelling my life, Paul says, to be with God. The prize is God. This has to be our highest aim. This upward call. I remember growing up watching the intro to the show, The Jeffersons. And there was that catchy song where it says we're moving on up to the east side. Um, to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Moving on up to the east side, we finally got a piece of the pie. Countless people are motivated by this goal of moving upward in life. We say things like, onward and up. We talk about upward upward. Mobility, we have all kinds of phrases to describe this sort of direction of many of our lives. For some, upward is financial success. For some, it's that promotion. I'm moving up in the org chart. For others, it's rising in social status, so it's finally getting the respect of that person. For some, upward mobility means finally achieving that relational status. I'm finally getting married. Or I'm finally getting to be a parent. Or for some of us maybe, I'm finally going to be single again. Some move up. And whether consciously or not, we are striving towards some goal, some vision of the good life that is moving us, that is propelling us in this direction. And what ends up happening is that everything, whether we like it or not, everything in our life begins to move in that direction as well. How we spend our money, how we use our time, how we relate to others, who we give our bodies to, how we vote, our brands, our morals, our styles, all of it is moving in the direction of some upward call. And here's the deal. No one has to motivate themselves to get moving. No one has to wake up in the morning and say, I've got to keep moving. Movement isn't the problem direction is this is why when the crowd asks peter what should we do the first word out of his mouth is repent so if you're taking notes here's the finally (laughs) that's quite the introduction finally the first point a godward life begins with repentance now before you tense up Before you import all of your ideas based on bad examples of this word repentance, a simple definition of the word repentance is a change of direction. This is a change in direction. It means to move in an opposite direction, to turn about 180 degrees. So imagine with me, you're driving on a mountain road. And then all of a sudden you approach a line of first responders blocking the road and as you come up close and you roll down your window to find out, they explain actually up ahead around the bend there was a mudslide that tore the road out. This is a dead end. You're gonna have to turn around and move in the opposite direction. This is what Peter is saying. It is a hard word, by the way. This is what Peter is saying, that your life is moving in a dead end direction That is headed towards destruction. It may seem promising. You may not be able to see the danger that is up around the bend ahead. It may seem like this is still going to be the path that gets you where you want to be. That this is the path towards joy and satisfaction. And it's going to get you to that place. But Peter is saying it will not. It's not going to get you there. Now this could be a really clear path of self-destruction for some of us. This could be substance abuse. This could be self-harm. This could be adultery or addiction. Or this could be just moving towards rejecting faith in Jesus or rejecting the goodness of God. It could be abandoning Orthodox Christian teaching and, and being swayed by deceit and being caught up with all the cultural narratives about you, the world, and God. Or It even could be acknowledging that you've just been making good things, just wholesome, good, normal things, ultimate in your life. The word the Bible would use for this is idols. Maybe you just wake up and you realize by God's grace that you have been elevating gifts to the place of creator. And instead of pursuing Christ, you're pursuing things with your life. Whatever the case is, the word here, repent, means to turn away from where you've been going and toward the Lord. Turn away from your sin and towards the Savior who redeems. Turn away from false identities. Turn away from false security. Turn away from false hopes and towards the true life that is found in Jesus alone. Not only is there a dead-end road ahead, and that is the warning in repentance, but there's actually something greater here on offer. It's not just be spared from destruction, but there is something far greater that is available to you. A Godward life is the most satisfying life. A Godward life is the most fulfilling life that you could imagine. The joy of fellowship with the Lord, his love, his embrace, the promise of eternal life. It makes all of the promotions and the praise of others and any other form of success in this world pale in comparison to what is offered to us in Jesus. Again, Movement isn't our problem, it's direction. And the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter two, these words, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in in which you once walked. So listen to these directional terms here. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. I don't even wanna know what that means. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is our natural default direction. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your history or where you're coming from. This is you. The Bible knows you better than you know you. This is you. And it may look nice. You may have nice stuff. People may envy your life. People may say, I want to live like that person. But apart from repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus in faith, this is your path. This is the direction of your life. And friend, hear me clearly. It will not end well for you. but the grace. The the goodness of God is that God has provided rescue for us in his son, Jesus Christ. It's the promises of the gospel, salvation, forgiveness from all of our sins, new life, indestructible hope, a sure future through trusting in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. Paul would go on in Ephesians 2 to say these words, and this giant, beautiful but here, but... God. Yeah, that was your story. Yeah, that's your direction. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's where the church says, Amen. And raised us up with Him and seated, think about these directional words here seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So if you've repented and believed, this is the truest thing of you. And this, by the way, is what baptism represents. The old me marked by trespasses and sin and dead, has been crucified and buried with Christ, and the new me has emerged, raised with Jesus in his resurrection, to live a life that is free and alive and devoted. Secondly, if you're taking notes, you guys still with me? A Godward life flows from the heart. Yeah, rev it up. A God where, that's right, a God where life flows from the heart. So throughout Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching a powerful sermon. It's probably one of the longest sermons we have recorded in scripture. But this good news is not pain-free news. He says to the crowd, this Jesus whom God has confirmed by all of these miracles that he's performed... This is the Messiah. And despite being confirmed by God himself, he says in verse 23, you still crucified him. You didn't just turn your back on him. You didn't just reject him indifferently. You put him to death. You killed him. And Peter says, this Jesus, who was crucified because of our sins, was raised in power. Death could not hold him. And ascended to the right hand of God, where he is now the risen Lord and Savior. Verse 37. And when they heard this, this is their response, and it should be our response. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Ow. Ooh. So there's a story from Christian history. During the time of the Great Awakening, there was a farmer that went to hear one of the great revival preachers, and he says this, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. In other words, all the things that I had been trying to do to save myself, to make myself right with God, were faulty, and through the preaching of the gospel, it was broken open. Now, is intellectual stimulation important? Absolutely. In fact, I hope that you're being intellectually stimulated at this moment. But what matters is that the truth of the gospel passes through our minds and deep down into our hearts. And often. A Godward life flows from a heart that has been cut by the truth pained by the reality of our own rebellion towards God. Guys, we need to hear hard things. And we need to hear those hard things often to break open those faulty foundations. And yet, hearts that have been healed by God's grace and forgiveness. He doesn't just leave us broken and say, deuces, I'm out. But a heart that's been healed by forgiveness, healed by his cleansing. Hearts that have been stirred, with affection for Jesus, hearts that have been set ablaze by love and the devotion that Jesus has for us. A Godward life is not the result of determining to change your behavior, and we really need to hear this at the beginning of the year because we're all in of course probably right now to change something in our life. But a Godward life is not the result of your determination. It's not a result of your grit. It's not even a result of your own religious devotion. No, a Godward life is the result of a renewed heart. It all, Jesus would say, flows from the abundance of the heart. St. Augustine illustrated this wonderfully. He said that the weight of something tends to move toward its proper place. Imagine smoke or fire. It moves upward or a stone, it rolls downward. Or if you pour oil in water, it goes down and then it comes back up. Or if you pour water on top of oil, it's gonna sink to the bottom. And he says they're acted on by their respective densities as they seek their own place. And things that are not in their proper place are restless until they're at home in their proper place. And once they're in their ordered place, they are then at rest. And then he says this, my weight is my love, and wherever I'm carried, my love is carrying me. In other words, the direction of my life is being determined by what I love most. And this is why the Bible places such an emphasis on the heart, and this is why God is not gonna settle for anything less than your heart, than your heart. Thirdly, a Godward life is counter-cultural. It runs against the grain of society. It moves in the opposite direction of what is deemed popular and celebrated by the majority of people around us. Do not expect for the world to stand by and cheer you on and applaud you in your pursuit of Christ. Don't expect your friends. Don't expect your family members. Don't expect your coworkers. Don't expect anyone outside the fellowship of believers to support your pursuit of the Lord. In fact, what you need to expect is the very opposite. Now you're probably being like, you're just being negative and doom and gloom. Jesus said in John 15, if they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. Why are you acting shocked? Jesus said it was going to happen. Expect resistance. Just expect to be misunderstood all the time. Expect guilt trips. Expect conflict. Expect like you are going to be swimming against the stream for the rest of your life until you enter into glory. I can't make you any other promises than that. And if you have any differing expectations for the Christian life, you are setting yourself up for complete disappointment. Expect to press against the tide. Why? Because Jesus already told you it was going to happen. Verse 40. And when many, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort. There, there's that word. He said difficult things to them, saying... Save yourself from this crooked generation. So our goal, reality, is not to fit in. Our goal is not to go with the flow of the world around us. Our goal, I'm sorry, is not to be seen as tolerant or affirming or culturally adapted. Our goal is not to catch up with the times. Our goal is not to be found on the right side of history. Our call is to be rescued from the way of the world. That's right there. To no longer move in the direction of a, quote, blame Peter here, a crooked generation, but to be set apart for the glory of God. Ray Ortland said this, the only answer to one culture is another culture. Not just a concept, but a counterculture. A church should offer the world such a counterculture, a living embodiment of the gospel. So that the world says, there's something different there. But that's different. That's weird, but unmistakably different. So how do you know that you're living a Godward life? Well, you find you're moving against the grain, and you, what, what you may find is that you actually don't fit in where you used to fit in before Christ. You find that you don't fit in with the same political camps like you used to, for instance. Socially, you're just too liberal for your conservative friends in the ways that you're concerned about the poor or the vulnerable or immigrants, in the ways that you begin to say, you know what, like, I'm grateful to live here, but I think there may be problems with, like, capitalism and that stuff. And yet, morally, you're too conservative for all your liberal friends in the ways that you hold fast to the Bible's teaching on sexuality and gender or that marriage is between one man and one woman, or that upholding the sanctity of life, which we'll celebrate next week. Or maybe you're gonna find that you don't fit into the same toxic conversations where people bash their spouses or always complain about their job or always objectifying people of the opposite sex. Now I know, and, and this is not lost on me. This is not lost on me. I know that there has been way too much like us versus the world language in Christianity. And it's honestly sickening. And I, uh, and I understand that the posture of many Christians throughout the years has been one of defensiveness, one of fearfulness, it's been unloving, it's been antagonistic. We're not talking about that right here. But what we have to understand here is that we are also in danger of swinging to the opposite side of the pendulum. And I don't just mean like we, the big C church, I'm talking about us reality. I have no business talking about the Big C church. Neither do you. (laughs) I'm talking about here, among us. I I think we have neglected, and and I'm putting myself a part of this. We have neglected the call to be set apart. We've neglected the call to be distinct and different and to not go along and to hold fast to unpopular opinions. The Saint Peter who's preaching this powerful message on Pentecost would later under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit write the letter of 1 Peter and say these words. But you, we ain't talking about the world out there. You, your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once, you were not even a people, but now you're God's people. Once, you would not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, hear these words over you. This is your identity. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, in other words, strangers in a strange land, to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation when God shows up to shake things up. Fourth, a Godward life involves a daily pursuit. We see this in the ways in which the Acts Church devoted themselves to pursuing the Lord in very practical ways. We're told that they devoted themselves to the, the apostles' teaching, which means the authoritative teaching of the apostles, those who had been with Jesus before and after the resurrection. Now, the office of apostle is closed today. But we do still have the apostles' teaching in the New Testament scriptures. We have that authoritative teaching to us. And so a Godward life is going to constantly lead us back to the scriptures where we hear from God, where we meet with God, where we learn from God, where we grow in our love for God. If you're like most people and you're struggling to be in the word daily, number one, you're not alone. But there are means to help you for this. As you're exiting the church later, as you pass the resource table, there's gonna be just this little booklet called the Guide for Spiritual Formation. If you're struggling to get into the word daily, please take a free copy. This will help guide you through what it means to be praying and meditating on God's word every single day because it's important for your growth. Secondly, it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now we're gonna talk all about this next week, so I'm not gonna dive too much into this. But there was no one here in Acts 2, at least that we see, believing that myth that I can follow Jesus apart from the church. It's like one in the same. If you want to move closer towards Christ, you move closer towards Jesus together in fellowship. Number three, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now there's some debate about what this means. It could mean like we go to someone's home and we enjoy a meal together. It, it could be just shorthand for eating together. And that's certainly important. But it's more likely talking about the Lord's supper, partaking of the Lord's table. And whether you know it or not, the Lord's supper is absolutely vital for your growth and your life moving in the right direction. Uh, Luke 24 illustrates this. Luke 24 takes place on the day of Jesus' resurrection. And two unnamed disciples are on a road towards Emmaus, moving away from Jerusalem. They know that Jesus has been crucified. They don't quite yet get that he's been raised. So they see all of their hopes in the Messiah dashed to pieces when Jesus is crucified. And they're done. We devoted our lives to this guy for like three years and now he's dead. We're gone. And they're moving in the opposite direction. They're moving away from Jerusalem. They're moving away from Christianity. They're moving away. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to them, but they don't quite understand that it's him. Maybe because he's just radiating glory, but probably because he's so marred. And he shares a meal with them. And it says in Luke 24 when he was at the table with them, he took bread. Blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Does this sound familiar? And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Guess what they did immediately? They changed the direction of their life completely and went back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples that they had seen the resurrected Christ. Don't underestimate the necessity of the Lord's Supper that comes in such a small glass. I say it every week, it's the smallest meal you'll eat today, unless you're fasting. Don't underestimate the necessity of the Lord's table. And this is why we partake every week, by the way. You're like, why do do we do this every single week? Because we need this means of grace every single week. And lastly, they committed themselves to prayers. Over 20 times in the book of Acts, we see that God's people are praying together. Why? because it's one of the most important things that we do. Prayer is how we direct our lives, direct our hearts, direct our fears, our sorrows, our needs, our emotions towards God. Prayer is how we direct our our distracted minds towards God, and prayer is ultimately how we abide in relationship with God. It's like any other relationship. We pray because we want to talk to him, every day, every day. As we step back, what we see here is that these were practices being carried out regularly. It was a new natural rhythm of their life. In fact, it says in verse 46 that these practices were happening day by day. Some things are worth repeating and repeating often. The sun rising in the east, I'm really glad that that happens every single day. And a good cup of coffee every single morning, I'm so grateful for that, amen? And someone saying, I love you, when you know they mean it. The things that matter most are always worth repeating. And this list, it looks so normal that we could just kind of overlook it. But these are the things worth repeating because they place us in the stream of God's continual grace. They're what the church in the past called the means of grace. It's the ways that God has provided to support us in our pursuit of him so that we can remain in an abiding relationship with him because he knows we're too weak to do it on our own. And you are too. Now, let me speak candidly to you. You may need to get over a mindset today. It's a pesky mindset, and it's this. Traditions and rituals are an obstacle to a genuine experience of Jesus. That is baloney. That is an absolute lie. And you say, and you make it pious like, it's not religion, it's a relationship. Listen, some hippies got together 50 years ago and said, we don't need rituals, we don't need traditions anymore, as if they were wiser than 2,000 years of Christians before them. And I'm telling you right now, that's not a revolution. It's not a revolution. I need time-tested faithful practices that are gonna outlast my short attention span and outlast my very limited spiritual stamina? How many of you have been praying about something important and then like 10 minutes later, you realize your mind's been wandering for nine minutes and 55 seconds? And I'm implying that you need these too. So reality, I'm calling you to diligently pursue the Lord this year through daily practices. Daily practices. Things done over and over and over again until they form godly habits that break the old sinful impulses and promote Christ-like character in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. James would say, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Finally, and very briefly, a Godward life is a praise-filled life. I love this, this. I would love to know exactly what's happening here. I can only imagine. But it says in verse 43, an awe came upon every soul. When we begin to see how great God is, what happens in our life is we begin to realize how small everything else is. What looms so big right now, our fears, our problems, our pains, our annoyances, They're all put into right perspective in light of the vastness of God. And while your problems may be big, and honestly, maybe your problems are so big, you don't even know what to do with them right now. We need to be reminded that our God is bigger, and he's stronger, and he lasts longer. And you and I need to ask God, That the same awe that overcame the church in the first century would overcome us today. And it says that as they were filled with awe and gladness, their response, their most natural response was to praise God. We were made for worship. Like all of us are trying to figure out our purpose. Why did God put me on this world? Here it is. Like, I can speak such a big statement into your life. Here is your purpose for your life, and wait, your eternity. It's to praise God. That's it. To praise God in various ways, in very creative ways, in diverse ways, but here it is. To praise God. It's the purpose behind our design. Why do I have breath in my lungs? Ultimately, to praise God. How am I able to move my lips and my tongue and my vocal cords to make these sounds that make sense to praise God? It's the thing that we are made for. And our lives will be aimless until we discover that purpose. I have to imagine entering into a new year, some of you are like, type A, you're like, I know exactly where I'm going this year. (laughs) And then the rest of us are like, "I, I don't know, man. I don't know, man. This is the purpose behind your life and you will be aimless until you recognize that you were made for nothing less than God's praise and God's glory. I'm gonna close with a prayer from history, a prayer of Basil of Caesarea. So if you would please pray with me and make this prayer your own. Lord, steer the vessel of our life toward you the tranquil haven of storm-tossed souls. Show us the course wherein we should go. Renew a willing spirit within us. Let your spirit curb our wayward senses and guide and enable us unto which is our true good to keep your laws And in all our work everywhere to rejoice in your glorious and gladdening presence. And all God's people said, amen, amen.